Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Hi. Hi. It's us. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Katie. I'm Mandy. And this is Our Dirty Laundry. It's, it's a podcast, podcast where you come every week to listen to us give you the dirt that we're learning about our history. When we say our, we are both white women, and we mm-hmm. want to learn about what white women have been doing to keep white supremacy alive. Turns out a lot. Turns out <laughs> a whole heck of a lot. And it's not history that we learned growing up. It's not history we think is widely available. I understand that to be intentional. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of these mini episodes coming up, I want to talk about what's happening in Tennessee. A story just broke um, in education circles. I, I have been an education professor and a teacher and education is my field. And the the Tennessee legislature passed one of the divisive concepts bills. And what mm-hmm. right now, what it looks like is that they want to be able to find schools when a teacher has been proven to violate this, to have taught about racism, let's say oh my gosh. that they want to find the school a million dollars or the district a million dollars. Oh my gosh. Get yep. the fuck out. No, Tennessee. I will stay. No, uh, Tennessee. I thought you meant me. I'm like, no, I'm no, going no, no. nowhere. <laughs> but um, guess who's behind it? And the very first yeah. people to issue complaints against a lesson of Ruby Bridges, who's a five-year-old black girl or was in you know the 60s, yeah. who yeah. Um, went to- Desegregated the right, first- Went to kindergarten all by herself school. because her all the white parents pulled their kids out of school. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like a very famous story, and there's tons of children's pictures books about it. And these white moms, I want to say that their name is like Moms of Glory or something insane, but they're oh. um, they they filed a complaint because it's you know making their kids uncomfortable. Oh so gosh, that's where I, we're at. Yep. I, so I hate our people. <laughs> I know. I said that to my husband. He's like, "That's a strong statement." I'm like. But is it accurate? <laughs> is it fair? I mean, I, I think what we're we're always excited to learn about white women who have not fallen into these traps. And we know Kate Schatz does a great job of teaching us about that. And hopefully we'll have a token white lady who didn't suck on our uh, series this season. But yeah, I, I am just feeling really frustrated. I will say one piece of good news from this week. I actually tweeted about this. I rarely tweet, but I opened a bag of frozen broccoli and it was all heads. <laughs> and I almost started crying. I was so happy about it. How did such luck befall you? I That's literally amazing. like giggled out loud. I couldn't wait to tell people like, what? This is. I think that this says much more about you than it says about the bag of broccoli. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Excuse bag of broccoli say. felt bad for me. I think those little heads were like, oh. <laughs> You need to fix stuff in your life. Um, yeah, I was just anyone who listened to our previous minisode knows that I'm in just kind of a dark place right now. So mm-hmm. yeah, that bag of broccoli like really turned a corner for me. So thanks I'm whoever so whoever filled it. Package. Yeah, you really knew what you were doing. So thank you. Because does anybody want a bag full of broccoli butts? No, <laughs> and that's what it normally is. Like I don't want your cast off tips. You're right. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's the thing that I love about making um, cauliflower rice, oh. which I love, mm-hmm. is that when you just like mince up all of that, it doesn't matter if it's the heads right. or the butts of it. It's That's all right. it all it's makes all good same. cauliflower rice. So yes, although it gives <laughs> I feel me, less I love it. I love eating it, and then I have problems later. I don't know. If oh you yeah, do, but definitely okay. the GI problems with that. Yeah, I know, well, but it's so good. More for more on okay, that, hi. listen to our other podcast. <laughs> Digestive health, <laughs> the ins and outs. Uh, okay, so tell me everything. Okay. I, I we left off. I know talking about like prominent feminists, um, Davenport, Gertrude Davenport, and Victoria Woodhull, mm-hmm. and how they came from really different perspectives. Like one, like you should only have sex with one person, kind of, or or maybe no one ever, kind of attitude. Right. And then one was like, <laughs> no, like you feel it, you go for it. But they yeah. both ended up um, coming at eugenics from a white supremacy perspective, and that is depressing. But I knew you had more women you wanted to talk about who fell into this camp yes. of like really prominent white feminists that are often held up as like really significant heroes in reproductive rights or you know feminism generally. But this is where white feminists fall down so often. And I, mm-hmm. and I think this, like you said in the very first episode that eugenics just generally is not something that people know has this really, really deep, dark history in the United States and that yep. these white feminists were part of it. So, yeah, for sure. And that's, what I was going to say, like there's in trying to find white women that we can say we're not shitty. A lot of that like tends to go south really quick because we yeah. start with these women that were like, oh, yeah, this was great. You know, when we were talking about the suffragists and mm-hmm. Susan B and all those people that we've emulated in mm-hmm. childhood. Um, and now then you learn the deeper history of it. and You're like, oh, well, shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> the mm-hmm. two women that we are going to talk about today are very well known for their early work in birth control. And in women's reproductive rights. But for both of them, it's really steeped in some ugly, ugly eugenics history. So, which often gets overlooked, but has just more recently, I would say, even in the past like few years and definitely in the past decade, has come to light that these women were not saints. So, mm-hmm. Um, but definitely thought of as feminists and like, you know, in women's national like halls of fame and had mm-hmm. stamps made after them and all of that kind of right. commemorative stuff that right. we do for people that we respect. But it turns out these broads were heinous bitches. Well, um, I, <laughs> I mean, for me, I think I, my listening gears are on to think like, okay, I might very well agree with and support their goals some of their goals as it pertains to, you know, women's access to healthcare or women's mm-hmm. right to vote, let's say, or whatever the, like, I think there are ways that we can say yes, but let's look at their, their tactics for trying to push for those changes. And then that was more of like the suffrage movement. Like, okay, what yeah. can we learn today about working in solidarity with people when we do share the same goal? And I think what I've been taking away from these women is let's unpack that goal. Like, let's get on the same page, but then let's what's under that goal to make sure that we're not aligning with stuff that has like a creeper, creepier, darker bent. Um, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. I, I'm, yeah. that's kind of what I'm listening for today. Right. Right. And it's just another reminder too, that like these 
typically thought of feminist movements are definitely not all encompassing. This is not an all women movement. Mm -hmm. This is Mm -hmm. very targeted, like specific white upper class educated women movement. Um, And that's where a lot of these ladies came from. Well, and that's where we come from. I mean, we Mm -hmm. try to be super clear about that. Like we're two white, straight, wealthy, you know, formally educated ladies. And that very specific combination of identities has done a lot of shit. And so Mm -hmm. we don't want to do that. We want to help people stop that who are in that same boat. Oh, on that point, by the way, I know anyone who listened to our minisode heard me say that (laughs) I've been siding with cartoon villains that want to like reclaim the earth from humans because we don't (laughs) deserve to have our planet anymore. And I realized that was actually like such an obviously white settler woman thing to say, because of course there are people who have been incredible stewards of this land. And I I just listened to this little podcast about a woman who is a cattle farmer and she's a 125th generation, you know, land steward. And Mm. I I was like, yeah, okay. So let me just be more specific about who I think those cartoon villains should like zap. (laughs) (laughs) That there are humans who have been and who are trying super hard to pull us off of this route that's going downhill very fast into like a flaming pit. And I think it's when I say our people, like rich, white, formally educated women, some who identify as conservative, but some who identify as progressive who like are really not helping that project at all. So can we, can we join in with those people who have been and are trying desperately to preserve, you know, what we have left of our planet. So that, okay. Anyway, I just soon. Yeah, like, like let's the next get on this few real weeks. quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, okay. So if you haven't listened to the previous eugenics episodes and you're just jumping in on this for the reproductive rights part of it, the quick eugenics recap mm-hmm. is the idea that you can build a quote unquote better human mm-hmm. race through selective breeding comes from Darwinism where we learned about natural selection and how over time evolution happens when nature chooses, you know, selects for these phenotypes, which make people more likely to survive. And then that's how evolution is thought to happen over time. And then of course, humans get a hold of this idea and are like, Ooh, let's speed this up and pick the things that we think are good. And these are the people who are in power. So typically wealthy white people at this time, mm-hmm. um, who then decided what was good and what wasn't good, and then how people should reproduce to amplify that or stop people from reproducing Mm. in order to stop these, what they deemed less desirable traits from passing on. So that's eugenics in a nutshell. And it, you can see where it goes. Gross tasting nut. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Okay. So the two women we are talking about today are widely known for beginning the birth control movement in Europe and um, mainly England and then the United States. So we're going to start over on the other side of the ocean today, jump across the pond, as they Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. to England and learn about Marie Stopes. 
So I've actually she, never heard of her. I mean, you say famous, yeah. but I didn't. I don't know that name. Well, it's probably because we're not English. I'm pretty sure the people <laughs> over it. <laughs> pretty sure people in England probably have some idea of who she is. Our British listeners either. are are like stoops, stoops, stoops. Yeah. They're very excited. <laughs> no, they probably shouldn't be. So okay. they are. <laughs> okay. If they are now, they're not going to be by the end of this. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, Okay, so she was born in 1880, died at the age of 77 in 1958. Um, the second yeah. woman we're going to talk about is Margaret Sanger in the United States, and oh, they sure. were contemporaries, like, alive at the same time. Okay. Okay, so what she's mostly known for on the positive end is opening the first birth control women's health clinic in London called Mother's Clinic in 1921. And this was a free clinic that gave birth control advice to women kind of just married women (laughs) (laughs) for one and it it was limited and yeah, we'll get to that. So, but the interesting thing is, so Marie did not start out in any sort of healthcare field. She was a scientist. She was a paleobotanist Mm -hmm. and a specialist in ferns and coal so, oh, do ferns turn into coal? Is that what I happens? I mean, there's something related. So I think like okay. she was studying ferns and trying to find out about like their reproduction because there are, I don't remember all of, all of this from botany and biology, but they I think reproduce a, in a strange way. I think of ferns right? as a sexy fronds. plant. Yeah. I remember yeah, they're uh-huh. like unfurling fronds, like kind of like an erotic yeah. plant. That's how I That's think right. of ferns. <laughs> well, it would make sense for her to study those because she's got a real weird erotic background, it turns out. Um, but apparently she was very good at this and quite prominent in this field. Um, in It said between 1903 and 1935, she published a series of paleobotanical papers mm-hmm. that placed her among the leading half dozen British paleobotanists over time, which I'm like <laughs> top six. The and there were only six. And there were, I know I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> How many were there? I don't know that that's a compliment. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> but she was, she was good because at the age of 23, she had her first job, um, at the Victoria university of Manchester wow. where she was a lecturer and she was the first female academic at that university. Wow. Wow. So yeah. that's that's not bad. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And there are some people who fought against that because they didn't think that women should be teaching men in the universities because, mm-hmm. you know, we're not up to snuff in that mm-hmm. time period. But she she got the job. So mm. the other thing that I thought was a funny comment when I was reading through this history is that it also commented Stopes was known around the campus as a partier. She would socialize <laughs> freely with staff, colleagues, and a few students and was known as a flirt. Oh. <laughs> okay. Oh. All right, Marie. Um, in 1911, she married a geneticist. So maybe this is where some of her genetic stuff came mm-hmm, from, although mm-hmm. this relationship did not go well. Okay. So it was a man named Reginald Gates. Um, she kept her last name, which also in 1911, very unusual, pretty unusual, but right. she was pretty famous in publishing all of this stuff and he was not so much. And so she uh-huh. was like, no, I'm not going with your name. Um, but he, she was also a suffragist and part of the women's freedom league in London. And he staunchly opposed her suffrage work. God, I like, wonder how they are you two getting married together. Totally. I know. I'm wondering the same thing. Okay. Well, who knows? Yeah. 
Yeah, but so he apparently had trouble like asserting his dominance as head of household, and that was very frustrating to him. And so there was lots of fighting um, just in the first couple of years. And after two years of marriage, she started to look out for advice on how to end the marriage. Mm -hmm. But it turned out that divorcing him was going to be too expensive. And Mm -hmm. so she went the route of getting the marriage annulled Mm -hmm. by claiming that it was never consummated. After two years, it seems a little strange. Don't know about that. Um, Apparently, they got the marriage annulled. So, however, she proved that. But he, the ex-husband, left England the next year. He didn't contest the annulment, but he disputed her claims. And he described her as super sexed to a degree that was almost pathological and said, I could have satisfied the desires of any normal Woman. Oh, zing. What? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These wow. two were not friendly. This was like a very acrimonious divorce. Ooh, so, okay. Because wow. when she also started writing her first book at the time of the divorce, which she titled Married Love or Love and Marriage. And she said, in my own marriage, I paid such a terrible price for sex ignorance that I feel that knowledge gained at such a cost should be placed at the service of humanity. Wow. So these two were just like digging back and forth at each other. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Really kind of impressive. Um, so she wrote this book, which was very detailed about sexual relations, apparently, which so was taboo I'm also curious, at the time, like, as you can... Which, good for her. Like, I'm very pro people understanding sex, knowing about sex. I like reading Dan Savage's column. Like, I think that's all really healthy and, you know, good, even regardless of, like, what did he call her? Sexed up the, yeah. <laughs> you know, wherever you fall in that she spectrum. Super sexed. Super sexed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering what, like... How did she get her knowledge to write that book? Well, apparently before she got married, I didn't get into all the details with this, but she had an affair with a married man who was in academics as well. Okay. Um, so she'd had other sexual partners. It wasn't yeah. just like her kind of like sexual. Yeah. Well, and they said husband. she was a flirt and partier. So, so maybe no, there was more going on. Okay. Well, yeah. So her. anyway. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But apparently like the community in general also felt the same way you did and wanted to learn all about this. Cause in the mm. first two weeks that this book was published, it sold 2000 copies. Wow. And then over its time sold three quarters of a million oh my copies, gosh. which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so in this writing of hers is the first thing she wrote. She didn't mention eugenics at all, but apparently after the book was published, all these women that had read it started to write her letters asking for advice. And one of the things that they were asking Mm. about was how to avoid unwanted pregnancies. Sure. Sure. As they like start to embrace their sexuality and like engage in heterosexual sex. Okay. Right. Um, But specifically among married people, because she was still very, Yes, pro-marriage against sex outside of marriage, which maybe doesn't make so so much sense given her affair, but whatever. Mm, Um, (laughs) As long as both people are married, (laughs) then it still sucks within some kind of, I don't know. Right. That's a terrible Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So she started writing other books that then 
did get into the whole eugenics thing. So she wrote a book titled Radiant Motherhood, mm-hmm. where she criticized any society that, quote, allows the diseased, the racially negligent, the thriftless. What is racially, racially negligent? negligent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I mean, I assume that that just means not, not white. Being, yeah, well, or maybe like not upholding whiteness, like white people who also then were to marry or at least have children with non-white people negligent. Okay. Uh huh. Which is interesting given that her affair was with a Japanese man, but oh, interesting. Okay. Um, anyway, so the thriftless, the careless, the feeble minded, the very lowest and worst members of the community to produce innumerable tens of thousands of stunted, warped and inferior infants. Hmm. Okay. I wonder if when she's using race in that sense, I have no idea. I'm just wondering if she's meaning like human race, like we're trying to make it like the human race better, or does she mean no, like racialized categories that in the 19, like early 1900s were getting like, they were very much a part of the, like she would have been super familiar with yeah. racial categories. Right. And, and no, I'm pretty sure given the rest of her views, she did not okay. mean it in the human Great. race. Awesome. She wasn't being, she wasn't being inclusive at all. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, so, Also, like early on in like 1922, she published a tract that was called Birth Control News, and she wrote about sterilization. So she said, sterilization of the unfit raises a hornet's nest, but no one worries at all about the daily sterilization now going on of the fit. Young married men of the professional class are today often forced by conditions to remain sterile, though they passionately desire the healthy children they could have if they did not have hordes of defectives to support in one way or the other. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Hordes of defectives. So I don't really know. I mean, again, what is she really getting at with this? So the young married men in the professional classes forced by conditions. What are these conditions? Is she meaning because society has to support, she says has to support these unfit people and they can't support their own. Yeah. I mean, that also just sounds like, like show me your data that you're using to make that claim, but also I'm sure there isn't any. Okay. Yeah. Um, But there may be some other conditions that she was referring to as well, which we can look to in her own family life, things that she thought could cause sterility. So, When she was 38, she had a pregnancy. This was in 1919. Um, She was a month overdue and went into a nursing home, which I guess is where people gave birth in. I don't think this means like an old person nursing home. I think it's like a a birthing center-ish place facility. Um, But apparently she and the doctors clashed over how she could give birth. She didn't want to give birth, like, as most people still do, ridiculously today, like, laying on your back with your feet up. She felt like she wanted to, like, be on her hands and knees, and the doctor would not let her do that. And her her child was stillborn. No. no. Which is, Mm -hmm. yeah, really, really awful. And who knows, like the month overdue and that happened if it was related to the birth. The doctors try to suggest that it was due to syphilis, but apparently that was excluded. Um, But Stopes was very, very, very furious and said that her baby had been murdered. 
Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, I can understand. That's heartbreaking. Ugh. Yeah. Really terrible. So trauma. Here we go with totally. the trauma again yep. in right. life. Um, but five years later, so in 1924, yeah, she was 43. And at the time of the birth, I guess she was 44. She wow. did have her only child. Um, Harry Stopes was his name. So Harry didn't get the best mothering. There was actually an article that I read for this that was called something like monster mother. Oh, they called oh. her. She was terrible. So Harry was forbidden by his mom to read books because she thought that reading encouraged people to only have secondhand opinions and stopped them thinking for themselves. As the author of books. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. And also she forced him to wear skirts until the age of 11 because she thought that the ugly and heating in the wrong places garments most men are condemned to wear could lead to sterility. Like pants. Pants. Fry your yeah. balls. Basically. Right. Okay. That's what she thought. So he was Books forced to wear skirts. burn your mind and pants and fry pants your balls. Burn, yeah, exactly. Parenting advice from Marie Stopes. From okay. Marie Stopes. Mm-hmm. She wrote a parenting book. You'll be pleased <laughs> to know. Um, he will also, for the same reason, was forbidden to ride a bicycle. Okay. The balls. Okay. So, anyway, so she was 44 when she had him. She couldn't have any more kids, but she thought that he should have a companion of some sorts. So she advertised to adopt a child between the ages of 20 months and two and a quarter years. So in her advertisement, she specified that the child should be absolutely healthy, intelligent, and not circumcised. So, so a boy, I'm assuming she means. Yeah. 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 So she wants a boy. Okay. An uh uncircumcised smart toddler boy. Uh Yeah. Okay. So she accepted a child named Robin, who was a boy from an orphanage. He was being brought up by his, no, he was an orphan, not in an orphanage. He was being brought up by his impoverished aunts, but she gave him back after two (gasps) years. No. Yes. Don't you worry. It gets worse. Oh my God. When she informed them that the boy who was then five would benefit from a few whippings. Oh, he was then followed by three other small boys, all of whom failed to live up to her standards in various ways. I mean, the fact that she's adopting a kid to serve as like a playmate to her child, not even like I want another kid, but like my kid needs a a playmate (gasps) and then and then returning them. them. Oh, so three more. There was. There was Dick who was returned to the National Children's Adoption Society on the grounds that he would never bloom so as to be a credit to us. That's why she returned him. John, who was rejected for a, quote, lack of academic ability and literary and artistic sensibility. And these kids are like four or five years old. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Like small children. And then Barry, who she renamed Roy fell out of favor for wetting his pants, making him unfit to live in a decent household. Fucking awful. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This woman, like, seriously, now you understand why the article called her a monster. 
Cause this is horrendous shit. Like so terrible. Then even with her only son, Harry, she strictly like so believed in these eugenic ideas that it ended up getting him kicked out of her will because he married a woman who was nearsighted and had to wear glasses. Yeah. And, and it's not, this is not heresy hearsay that she's setting any of this shit. She wrote this down in letters that are available, the ways that she complained about this marriage. So she said, Mary, who was her son's wife, has inherited a physical defect and morally should never bear children by marrying what? her. Yeah. Morally should never bear children because she's she nearsighted. Nearsighted. Okay. Mm-hmm. By marrying her, he has betrayed his parents and made a mock of our life's work for eugenic breeding and the race. If I so, were Harry, I'd be like, good. Bye. Yeah. What? Out. Yeah. Ugh. She said, she said she has inherited a disease which not only makes her wear hideous glasses, so it is horrid to look at her. Jesus, this woman is like the worst person I've ever heard of. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But she said, the awful curse will carry on, and I will have the horror of our line being so contaminated and little children with the misery of glasses. (laughs) This is insane. I can't believe that this is the story. By yeah. the way, I did look up a picture of her while you introduced her because I just had no conception. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's not like she's the most glamorous fox in town. <laughs> also, by the way, I'm sure you're going to get to this, but I was horrified to see that when you Google her name and click images, that Marie Stopes' finest all rubber racial cap pops mm, up. Yeah. yeah okay, yeah, yeah. so I can't she, wait to hear yeah. what that is. All right. Um. So she said, Mary and Harry are quite callous and both the wrong about both the wrong to their children, the wrong to my family and eugenic crime. And she subsequently wrote him out of the will. So like, like you said, if you were Harry, you'd be like, peace out psycho I'm gone. And what I love is that Harry then stayed married to this woman for 70 years and they had four children. So apparently they did give the middle finger um, to Marie, but he did defend his mom later on, Ugh. like in writings and articles when she started to be criticized for all of her bullshit. He used the old defense that we know. He said that people who would try to criticize her were out of touch with the realities of the twenties mm-hmm. when such views were less controversial. That actually indicts her more like, uh, don't, yeah, I mean, we've talked about that a million times on this podcast. Like saying yeah. that a lot of people were horrible isn't really Doesn't like a apologize great anything. Case. Yeah. yeah, and yes, of that's... course, there were people at the time that were like, "No, right, yeah." Ugh. Okay, so well. she left like a bunch of stuff. I think she left her clinics to the Eugenic Society of London, and then she left all of her money to another foundation. She did give Harry the 13 volume collection of her encyclopedia. That's what he got from her. Mm-hmm. Great. In Great. At her death. Mm, cool. Okay. Henry was alive until 2014. He died what? at the age of 90 in 2014. Wow. So again, this is also how close all of these histories are. We've talked totally. about this before too. Mm-hmm. This stuff is not that far removed. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So 
totally bonkers. Oh, and his like her grandchildren are like our Alive. age, probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. I wonder if they are nearsighted. If someone <laughs> Oh my god, I love it. And if if like by some chance someone knows a British person with the last name of Stopes who you think might be related to this woman, we'd love to talk to them. Oh That's, man. Yeah. yeah. So we already talked about her first marriage that she annulled after two years. Then her marriage to um, Humphrey Rowe, who was the father of Harry. Oh, right. Okay. And he was the person who then also founded this clinic with her. Um, but their relationship was not so great either. Mm-hmm. He was apparently um, a World War One flying ace. He was a rich philanthropist, but they had... Harry together. No, Henry. Sorry. His name is Humphrey. There's too many H's. Yeah. Um, but they had Henry together. Henry, but apparently Harry, cause you've said Harry, but maybe that's just a nickname. It doesn't matter. It's fine. Yeah, no, you're right. I can't get, no, I think his name's Harry. I, I said Henry later, but it's not his name's Harry. Anyway. So she forced Humphrey, her husband to write a letter, which she dictated to him freeing her from their marriage vows because she was bored of him as a lover and a companion. Okay. They did not divorce, but she banished him to the attic of their 18th century mansion. And he went there. And he went there. (laughs) And she only let him enter other rooms in the house if he had first completed his chores. (laughs) This woman is... A psychopath. I mean, also, why? Did, like, why would he stay in that situation? I mean, there's. I'm sure it's complicated, but ooh. that's all. That is all. Like, if I saw it on a soap opera, I would laugh at how ridiculous it is. Yeah, it's absolutely bonkers. Like, yeah. this is all so fascinating. Like, what in the world? Yeah. So then, given this background in history, none of us will be shocked to learn. That she was a big fan of the Nazis and Hitler. Okay. So in 1935, she attended the International Congress for Population Science in Berlin, which was two years into the Nazi rule. And she wrote about concepts of racial purification and racial degradation. So Mm -hmm. she's not talking about the human race. Yeah, got it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was very racist, anti-Semitic, and also virulently Mm anti-Catholic. So, Mm -hmm. um, then in 1839, it's also documented one month before Britain went to war with Germany, she sent Adolf Hitler a copy of her book, Love Songs for Young Lovers. (laughs) Yeah, for real. This is not made up. She included uh, the following introductory letter. So this letter exists in with the book that she sent to Hitler a month before Britain went to war. Dear Herr Hitler, love is the greatest thing in the world. So you, so will you accept from me these poems that you may allow the young people of your nation to have them? The young must learn love from the particular till they are wise enough for the universal. I hope to that you yourself may find something to enjoy in this book. Ugh. Gross. Ugh. Yeah. And then in 1942, during the Second World War, War, Second World War, she wrote a poem that included the stanza, Catholics, Prussians, the Jews, and the Russians, all are a curse or something worse. What the fuck? 
Uh, She was a big proponent of compulsory sterilization for the mentally or physically unfit Mm. and for those born into mixed marriages, which she called (sighs) half-castes, saying that they should be sterilized at birth, thus painlessly and in no way interfering with the individual's life. The unhappy fate of he who is neither black nor white is prevented from being passed on to yet unborn babes. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. 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 Is right. So the um, thing about the racial caps, they were also called something else. And there was also something called the golden pin. Anyway. So I, from what, what I can read racial caps, it's like a cervical cap, kind of like a, a contraceptive method and she called it the racial cap yeah yeah uh-huh she did was it mm-hmm. wait, okay wait i'm just wrapping my mind around this so was it like hey white woman you're going to have sex with someone who isn't white you better put your racial cap on maybe or like how to or promoting the use of those among people that she didn't think should have mm-hmm. more babies because this was a big thing of like mm-hmm. wanting these mm. more fit people to reproduce, yes, in their own time and like with their own, you know, by their own education and having understanding of all of that. But um, they also did not want other people to reproduce. So maybe mm. teaching like those in the poorer class and that were not white to use these. Okay. And or yeah, both. I'm sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um. So this is her, but this is just one more point to point out how just absolutely batshit loom ball crazy this woman legitimately was. Um, it said in one of these articles that her private life was torn apart by her raging megalomania and a belief that she was some sort of divine messiah. So she apparently at one point addressed a conference of Anglican bishops and greeted them with, my lords, I speak to you in the name of God. You are his priests. I am his prophet. I speak to you of the mysteries of man and woman. She's crazy. But this woman. not like when you think about the, the leaders of movements that tap into these like horrible impulses and ideas, not unique. No, no. Yeah. No. So was she, you said that there were critics that her son was responding to, but had she been a more revered figure? Like what is yeah. her status now? So in they had, um, Marie Stopes international was like a, um, an international organization for like reproductive rights, birth control, all of that kind of thing, which was named after her, like in honor of her, but never mentions any of the rest of this eugenics ugliness that she was part of. Mm-hmm. And apparently that quote from him was in a guardian article um, when they talked about renaming that mm-hmm. um, organization. So instead of being mm-hmm. Marie Stopes international, it's now MSI, but they don't, use like the Marie Stopes. They don't <laughs> say that that's what it stands for, okay. but they just use those letters. Okay. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah. And apparently there was a big outrage because they did put her on one of this, like made a stamp for her mm-hmm. recently in Britain. Oh. And people were like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. You can't put this woman on stamps. Um, so those are okay. some of the recent controversies with that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. 
Totally, totally crazy. Anyway, so that's Marie Stopes. Um, she had, her friend over in the Americas mm-hmm. was Margaret Sanger, which I also didn't know a lot about. Like, I'm yeah, sure I'd heard her name and knew that she <clears throat> had founded what eventually became Planned Parenthood. And so, therefore, is revered in that way in American feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, she, like I said, they're contemporaries. They met in London in 1913, 1914 time period when Sanger was there in exile where she was avoiding trial under the Comstock laws that we've talked about mm-hmm. before for mm-hmm. one of her publications. So it was mm-hmm. against the law to like publicize certain sensitive things and put them through the mail. And so she had done that with some tract and they were trying to put her on trial. So she went over there for a couple of years in exile. Mm -hmm. So there's not as much about um, her personal life as there was about Stopes. But an interesting thing is, is that she um, was born to parents um, and her mother was Anne Higgins she conceived, she had 18 pregnancies and 11 live births before she died at the age of 49. Wow. And Sanger was apparently the sixth of those 11 surviving Mm. children and Mm. spent her life kind of in this household with tons and tons of children. And then not a mother for most of it because her mom died. Um, So this may inform some of her later views about how women should limit the number of children mm-hmm. that they have, I would assume in mm-hmm. some way, that especially like if the, you don't have the resources to raise them. Right. Um, she eventually got married and had three children of her own. She was divorced and then remarried at one point. So she started her work as a nurse, and this is kind of where she got into the reproductive control stuff. Um, she often told stories about meeting women who had frequent childbirth, who had miscarriages, Mm. and then who self-induced abortions Mm. um, because Mm. they didn't know how to avoid pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Um, So she told a story frequently about a woman named Sadie Sachs, who she had gone to take care of after she became extremely ill due to a self-induced abortion. Mm. Um, She said that afterwards, the patient, Sadie, begged the attending doctor to tell her how she could prevent this from happening again, and the doctor advised her simply to remain abstinent. She said his exact words and actions um, were apparently to laugh, and say, you want your cake while you eat it too, do you? Well, it can't be done. And I'll tell you the only sure thing to do, tell Jake, her husband, to sleep on the roof. So that was his answer to her, mm-hmm. apparently, which Sanger thought was bullshit, which rightly. Is, like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, so then yes. she says a few months later, she was called back to the apartment. Only this time, Sadie died shortly oh, after God. Sanger arrived. She had mm-hmm. attempted yet another self-induced abortion. <sighs> um, Sanger would sometimes end the story by saying, I threw my nursing bag in the corner and announced that I would never take another case until I had made it possible for working women in America to have the knowledge to control birth. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yes, Which, actually. Yes, right. absolutely. Yeah. On board with yeah. this. Yeah. Um, there's also some controversy that there was never any corroboration of that story. Mm-hmm. So that 
it might be something that she fabricated Mm -hmm. to use in parts Mm -hmm. of her speeches, but I'm absolutely sure that if it was fabricated, it's a conglomeration of stories that she witnessed while she was a nurse at that time. Story, even if it didn't happen to her or in that way, it's like a conceivable story. Yes. Very, very conceivable at that time. Um, And then that story, along with the apparently Sanger had to rescue um, her own niece, who was apparently an unwanted child from a snowbank that she had been left in in 1904, um, marked the beginning of her commitment to spare women from the pursuit of dangerous and illegal abortions or abandonment of infants. Sure. she was opposed to abortion, actually. She was very against it. She thought it was um, a societal ill, a public health danger, and she thought it would disappear if women could prevent unwanted pregnancies in the first place, right. which, I mean, come on. This is not something that pro-life people disagree with at all either. I mean, I think that's commonly the what's misconstrued is that people, I mean, pro-choice, people who are pro-choice are pro-abortion, which mm-hmm. is not right. the case necessarily. I mean, we're right. it's pro access to safe methods, yeah. If that's necessary, but primarily, we all know that when people can control pregnancies in the first place and not end up with unwanted pregnancies, then abortions aren't necessary for yeah. a large, large, large proportion. It it is always really puzzling to me. I remember talking about this with a family member who's you know very very opposed to abortion, and we had a great conversation about it and is that I think we're actually on the same page. Like something we can agree about is we want fewer, if no abortions. Mm-hmm. So like the, the scientific way to do that is give women like very easy access to birth control and give men access to birth control and give everybody really great education about sex. And yep. they were like, yeah, that's where we disagree. I'm like, well, I don't know how else to get your goal. Right. Like, right. I, I, that would be how to do it. So I, it's hard for me to understand people that both do not want abortion access, nor do they want information or yeah. birth control available. Like I, yeah. I can't square that. It's I like, don't know. I just maybe need do to talk they not people. understand how babies are made. I don't, I know. don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <sighs> anyway. Um, so the interesting thing in reading like a lot of the times when I first go to look at these people, I just go to their Wikipedia summary and then I find sources after that. (laughs) But it's interesting in reading her, the, like the opening part of her Wikipedia summary hardly mentions anything about eugenics. Mm. It just talks about her work as an American birth control activist, sex educator, writer, nurse, um, that she termed the, or she coined or pop, popularized the term birth control. She Mm -hmm. opened the first birth control clinic in the United States and established the organizations that eventually evolved into Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it goes on and on and on about that. And then just has this little blurb that says she has been criticized for supporting eugenics. Mm. That's putting it mild late. Um, But it states she has a quote that said, we maintain that a woman possessing an adequate knowledge for her reproductive functions is the best judge of the time and conditions under which her child should be brought into the world. We further maintain that it is her right, regardless of other considerations to determine whether she shall bear children or not, and how many children she shall bear if she chooses to become a mother. Great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like all of that can get behind. I think that's the function of Planned Parenthood 
currently, mm-hmm. but that was not the end of things. <laughs> you, for turn, her. you turn the page of the pamphlet, it's like, <laughs> and you're like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so it says, although Sanger articulated birth control in terms of racial betterment, like most old stock Americans, she supported restricted immigration um, and defined, oh, this is saying that she she usually defined fitness for reproduction as an individual matter rather than in racial terms, but that's not exactly true. Mm. That's also like a little bit of um, rose-colored glasses onto mm. the things that she said. So she had a speech in 1921 called The Morality of Birth Control, and she divided society into three groups in this speech. One, the educated and informed class that regulated the size of their families, and the intelligent and responsible who desired to control their families in spite of lacking the means or knowledge, and then third, the irresponsible and reckless people whose religious scruples prevent their exercising control over their numbers, that there is no doubt in the minds of all thinking people that the procreation of this group should be stopped. Her eugenic policies included an exclusionary immigration policy, free access to birth control methods, and full family planning autonomy for the able-minded, as well as compulsory segregation or sterilization of the profoundly retarded. In quotes. Sanger wrote, we do not believe that the community could or should send to the lethal chamber the defective progeny resulting from irresponsible and unintelligible breeding. Thanks. That's great. Yeah, okay, great. You're, you're saying like, oh, don't worry. We don't think you should, you know, like execute them. We're no. just going to sterilize them. That's right. just such a like, bananas way to present your argument. Like, I'm not saying this, like, heinous human rights abuse. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, four steps, you know, to the side of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and she also criticized charity organizations that provided free obstetric and post-birth care to indigent women without providing information about birth control or educating the children. She said, such charities, by doing such, the poor woman is taught how to have her seventh child when what she wants to know is how to avoid bringing into the world her eighth. Um, I mean, that I really, again, because I'm like pro-access to information. I feel right. like, yeah, if some, you know, and maybe somebody wants to have eight kids. Great. Right. But exactly. That's where the problem I, comes I in. I would hope you would know that you yeah, yeah. don't have um, to. Yes. So she also published a track called My Way to Peace that is basically like her eugenics platform. She argued that to pers- preserve racial hygiene, the government should enact three coercive measures. Racial First, hygiene? Hygiene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, yeah, like, first, like human race or like racialized groups? No, no, like okay, racialized great. groups. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first it should sterilize those with mental and physical disabilities, including morons, mental defectives, and epileptics, in quotes. Second, it should segregate on state-run concentration farms oh, a much broader public of impoverished and criminal citizens, including paupers, prostitutes, drug addicts, illiterates, and the unemployed. If the second group reforms its behavior and accepts sterilization, they could return to mainstream society. By her own estimate, she said 15 to 20 million citizens would live under that regime of segregation and sterilization. Oh, my God. Which, this is the classic moment where, like, 
economic injustice and inequality dovetails with racism so much because she's she hasn't thus far used like specific racialized terms but of course we know disproportionately who would be on that farm yeah yeah for real and this is it that comes up in a little bit in a critique that angela davis made of her yeah um but there's the and then there was the third initiative, which would be obligatory birth control training for mothers with serious diseases such as heart disease in an effort to persuade them to renounce any future childbearing. So we're going to get into next week for sterilization in the United States, yeah. where at least 70,000 people were forcibly sterilized under the laws that were promoted by Sanger um, and people like her. Um, so, yeah, there's some... Like I quoted earlier, people try to say that, like apologists for her try to say she focused on the individual rather than race as a whole. But other people are like, that's really not I mean, true when you look at what she's saying. For for concentration farms that are going to put twenty percent of the pop, like that's not an individual plan. No. Well, and one of her most cherished initiatives was called the Negro Project. We can only imagine where this is going to go, which targeted predominantly black neighborhoods for birth control programs and recruited African-American leaders to persuade minority populations of the value of contraception and sterilization. She wrote in a letter um, in 1939 to someone about this project. We don't want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, which is like, Wait, Wait, do you? You don't want the word to go out, but that is the purpose? Like, you don't want people to find out? Very misleading. What? What are you trying to say? Okay. Uh. Uh, Yeah, so Angela Davis said... When Margaret Sanger, my dog's going crazy. Sorry about that, as always. When Margaret Sanger built an independent birth control campaign, she and her followers became more susceptible than ever to the anti-black and anti-immigrant propaganda of the time. Like their predecessors who had been deceived by the race suicide propaganda, the advocates of birth control began to embrace that prevailing racist ideology. Davis shrewdly concludes that with Sanger birth control based on individual freedom, denigrated into population control engineered by a coercive state. And there is no question as to the color of the populations to be targeted. Right. Yeah. Right. So not only was she a racist, she was also ableist. She had quotes yeah. saying that Americans were paying for and submitting to the dictates of an ever increasing unceasingly spawning class of human beings who should never have been born at all. She argued in 1938 that institutional and voluntary sterilization were not enough as they do not reach those elements at large in the population whose children are a menace to the national health and well-being. Mm. She wrote of Nazi sterilization laws that indications laid down in German law are being carefully observed. These are congenital feeble-mindedness, schizophrenia, hereditary epilepsy, hereditary chorea, Huntington's chorea, um, hereditary blindness or deafness. Grave, hereditary bodily deformity, wow. and chronic alcoholism. She said, mm. surely everyone will agree <laughs> no, that <Margaret>. children, <laughs> yeah, no, Margaret, no, <laughs> that children of parents so afflicted are no contribution to the nation. <gasps> For even if they do not inherit these defects, they are children of parents so handicapped that life will give them little owing to their ne- nece- necessarily bad environment. Oh, my God. Okay, no, I, I, oh my God, I have so many thoughts and questions. <laughs> but you had said that Helen Keller was also into eugenics, and I can't yeah, yeah. 
understand that or even how she would like was she saying she agrees that like she shouldn't have been allowed to lit like what i don't understand yeah well we'll get into helen keller's statements when we talk next week about okay. forced sterilization okay. and the supreme okay. court case buck v bell because that's when she wrote about that okay. um but apparently um margaret singer was interviewed in 1957 by mike wallace what and said yeah i know like mike this is wallace? so this is what we're talking about this stuff right it's very, right. yeah. In 1957, she said, the greatest sin is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents and have no chance in the world to be a human being practically. Delinquents, what? prisoners, all sorts of things marked when they're born. No. Mm-hmm. This yeah. it makes me think of one of the best documentaries I've seen in a long time is called Crip Camp. It came out mm-hmm. the, maybe this summer. I think I watched it on Netflix. Um it was about activism. Well, it's, it starts off in this like summer camp for kids who had some kind of physical disabilities and like what an incredible place it was because they didn't feel marginalized and they felt like they could just be teenagers who like smoked and made out and like had fun with each other and just like had a great time at this camp. And then they became Mm. friends. And then a few of them became like really powerful act disability rights activists and then called on their friends from camp to like show up to these really incredible rallies and sit-ins and demonstrations and like, I should say occupations of buildings, but they, it, they were like this force behind the individuals with disabilities act. And I just also got this picture book that I love for my daughter. And I cannot think of the name of the, the Jennifer or something. It's called all the way to the top about this little girl who was in a wheelchair and it was like pre access to things and how she was an activist and like, like got herself out of the wheelchair and crawled up the steps of the Capitol to draw attention to the fact that Mm -hmm. the ADA was proposed, but that politicians said it was too expensive and they weren't going to require that public buildings be accessible or like public Mm -hmm. transportation. And so it, and that was all in the seventies, like not that long ago at all. And Mm -hmm. the whole idea of Margaret Sanger to say, that like all of these people, you know, don't fit in our society just assumes that our society is that this is the only way it can be. This is the best way it can be instead of saying like, or we could just build ramps into buildings and then everyone can get in like, right. Fine. You know, or, and I know that's like specific to like a physical, um, physical ability, but Mm -hmm, there's, mm -hmm. there's a friend that I really want to bring on to talk about because he, his specialty is thinking about how, disability intersects with the history of racism in really, really mm-hmm. important ways. Mm-hmm. And so maybe mm-hmm. for eugenics, he'd be great to bring on because, um, yeah, I can see why Sanger apologists like the loopholes that they're trying to exploit in what she was saying, yeah. even though it like Angela Davis is saying is like, we all know exactly who would show up in those mm-hmm. groups of people that mm-hmm. she's talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And does less there be any like, dispute about whether or not any of her stuff was racist. She was also supported by one of the most racist um, authors that said in America in the 1920s, Klansman Lothrop Stoddard, who was a founding member of the board of directors of Sanger's American Birth Control League. Okay. So when you've got the Klan 
is on your you, board of right? directors. Right. I mean, come on, <laughs> right. let's quit pretending right. that you weren't racist right. in the way that you were going about right. things. So it mm-hmm. reminds me a little bit. Some people might see these billboards. They're like anti-abortion billboards that are making the claim that black, that the rates of abortions among black bundlers is like higher. And so that abortion is like killing black babies and mm-hmm. they're always, have you seen these billboards or yeah, commercials I, or whatever? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, they're always funded by like uber conservative groups. And it's just like, again, like, I don't believe that you give a shit about mm-hmm. black families because of every other policy you have yep. and every other thing you've ever said. So it, it feels like especially egregiously shitty to try to pretend that that's what you care about in order to like advance your agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I mean, I know there are people who are against abortion from every walk of life for lots of different reasons, but the understanding these arguments in light of eugenics, I think is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. And it gets complicated. Like we talked about in earlier episodes, like some of this is really complicated when you think of some of the reasons that people end up having abortions mm-hmm. or, you know, when we're talking about screening of embryos and mm-hmm. all of mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, because right. they, and one article I read said that statistics worldwide demonstrate a good proportion of society has accepted the premise that it is better for a child that would be disabled not to be born. Mm-hmm. In 2017, CBS, mm-hmm. there was a CBS report that found a near 100% abortion rate in Iceland, when people um, were diagnosed with a Down syndrome pregnancy, oh, yeah, and Denmark had has a ninety eight percent abortion rate oh. following diagnosis. The United oh. States has an estimated sixty seven percent abortion rate after a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. Hmm. It is complicated. It's, it's a, such a like a Pandora's really, box that science yeah. lets us open for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What, has Planned Parenthood ever made a statement about Margaret Sanger's connections yes. to all of these things? Yes, yes. So in, I think it was just, was it last year? Oh, I don't have this article right here and I didn't put it into this. Um, they took down her statue from mm-hmm. the Planned Parenthood um, headquarters in New York just recently. Mm-hmm. I want to say maybe even last year, I think in mm-hmm. 2020. They did. And they came out with a statement about, they used to be very apologetic about her as well. Like very defensive and very, you know, like pro singer. But I think just in the past couple of years, they really changed their tune. And yeah. Like what, what come out with some other statements saying we, I mean, I don't know anybody reading anything that she said, (laughs) but all of that has been available. So I'm always curious, like, did maybe they get a new leader or, like what helps shift the culture conversation within the yeah. organization to say like, okay, it's time we need to do this. Yeah. I, I'm really curious about all of that or like what outside pressures they're facing that, you know, is it internal decision? Is it external mm-hmm. pressure? Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about Woodrow Wilson when we w- talked to activists who are trying to change the name of cat hall, Carrie Chapman yeah. cat that we looked at like, you know, president Woodrow Wilson, that the, that schools have taken their name, his name off of it because mm-hmm. of the legacy he has related to being like super into racism. Also, by the way, president at this time, like I just, yeah. I think uh, that isn't to 
apologize. It's just to say like that it is that widespread. It is that deep. It is that common. And so, so much of what you said today, I was just thinking about like arguments or debates or policy proposals that are around today. And they're not that far from all of this. Like these ideas really haven't gone anywhere. They just evolve. Yeah. (laughs) There's, there's some social Darwinism for you. Mm -hmm. Like the the evolution of ideas. Evolution of evolution of eugenic ideas. Uh, Oh, well, well, I know I said that that maybe this would be shorter. It's not. No, but this is really great. Mm, Thank you. And I know next week the episode is going to be really hard and painful to Mm -hmm. learn about, but I think it's really important and not again, not that old of a history. So thanks for looking into this. I appreciate it. At all. All right. Okay guys. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.